This is Urban Tiger Radio, a project supported by CybermouseMultimedia.com, sponsors of our free weekly podcasts. Search for Urban Tiger Radio in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher.com and hit the subscribe button to receive free automatic downloads. Please remember to share and rate our show before you leave. This week's episode is The Seaside Things by Bill Allerton from my collection of short stories, Firelight on Dark Water. Like most people of my age, I've had the misfortune to be present at the point of death of people who were very close to me, and those experiences left me with an unanswerable question. How to explain the moments of lucidity that can appear immediately prior to the loss of all bodily function? These moments have sometimes taken the form of one-sided conversations with loved ones who have passed previously. I have no answer for this, but having seen it in action, I've tried to come up with an explanation that I can live with. This story is about just that scenario. The story also concerns the way that bereavement affects the ones left behind. After all, they are the ones who are acutely aware that you were dead, while, mercifully, you or in blessed oblivion. I've known people enshrine the life, and indeed the very belongings of those who have departed their lives, effectively building a wall between themselves and a continuing reality, in a kind of stasis in which nothing moves or changes. From this stasis, feeding initially on itself and a situation frozen eternally in time, comes a sense of blame. Blame is a ravenous creature. It feeds on what if, not on what is, and eventually on you. With her hands immersed in soft suds and the pale delicacy of old china, Hattie felt the switch go over in her head. She recognised it instantly. Her mother had described it so perfectly she didn't even think to panic. Instead, a slow smile spread across half her face. It was like opening the door to find an old friend you'd been expecting for years. She tried to open the drawer, to trap the tea towel in the edge, but her left arm wouldn't lift. She folded the towel one-handed and draped it on the radiator, then found the sudden inspiration to turn on the tap before fetching the kettle. She filled it through the spout and placed it on the hob, then stopped for a moment to work out how to strike a match. The box jammed itself neatly between the cooker and the edge of the sink unit with the sandpaper edge face up. This isn't going to be so hard, she thought, sitting down to wait for the kettle and all the while reorganising the kitchen in her head. She lifted her useless left hand into her lap and chafed the scar tissue gently with her right and placed it into the pocket of her pinafore where it would stay out of trouble. Things would just take a little longer now, that's all. Before she lifted the boiling kettle, she drew back the net curtain to peer out into the street. 
something she hadn't felt comfortable with for as long as she could remember. Traffic skimmed past on the wet tarmac, scarcely 30 feet from her door. The sun was beginning to show, and water steamed along the gutters, filling the air with ephemeral wisps. Two cars approached from different ends of the street, and she watched calmly as they passed safely in front of her. This was new, and perhaps welcome. That same late August afternoon, with the sun now a solid pole through the glazed south light and the sound of a trapped bee sawing away in a corner and her left leg dragging behind her, no more use than a prop, Hattie climbed the steps into the loft. She made her way under the eaves and with great effort single-handedly dragged out the trunk that she and the policeman had wrestled into there some forty-odd years ago. The travel trunk was small, but capacious, and patterned with hide as softly grained as the skin of her good right hand, and its black half-dome lid had remained closed for all that time since it had been ripped from the boot-rack of the car. Stripping open the buckles, Hattie pushed back the lid. She held her breath for what seemed an age, then reached in and took out the seaside thing. The sand-coloured blanket she shook open onto the floor, then lifted out a brightly striped beach bag. Underneath it was a small collapsible deck chair. Hattie struggled this open and placed it on the blanket. Tipping out the contents of the beach bag, she sat down amongst them and picked up the old camera. She peered into the viewfinder, shading the bright glass cube from the sunlight. Out in the distance, across her own private beach, was a, a small figure, upside down, and waving. Hattie looked up suddenly, and guessed she must have seen her own toes wriggling their way down into the sandy blanket. Her heart leapt at the small moment it had given her. Placing the camera carefully on the floor beside her, Hattie climbed into the chair and picked up a large pink shell. Cupping it to her ear, she heard the sound of a gently turning sea, very far away. If she were to stay up here, listening to the sea, amongst these long ago but seldom forgotten things, who would notice? After all, it was her fault there was no one left to care. Seconds later, she was asleep. She awoke at ten minutes to four as a shadow lingered between herself and the sun. She tidied the things back into the trunk and made her way downstairs. After a few days, the only place where Hattie felt alive was in the loft. The rest of the house was becoming dark and indistinct, as if little existed below the old wooden steps that led up to her own patch of seaside. In Hattie's seaside, the sun always shone, the air was always still and calm, and the sand warm between her toes. And while she slept up there, there was no sound of rending metal to fill the dreaming time. 
After the heat of August had passed, the following week drew in September storms to drum the cumulus sky. Amid lightnings and great volumes of tumbling air, for four days the air in the loft shook and crashed. For those four days, Patty stayed away, but by the fifth she could resist no longer. With a last look beyond the landing window at the rain driving away towards the east, she went up into the loft. As her head cleared the hatch, the storm broke the horizon and a watery sun split the raindrops on the south light into shifting cathedral sparks. Taking out the seaside things, she set them down carefully. She unfolded the deck chair that now seemed drab against this light and sat down. Within reach at the bottom of the trunk was a small brass telescope, hardly bigger than an opera glass. She picked it up and held it into the stream of light. Looking through it, she could see her toes, then her eye moved upwards to the place where the sand seemed to run out forever towards a thin line of blue at the edge of the world, where a small figure stood, watching her. She dropped the glass into her lap, and the loft rushed back in to trap her in its drowning kaleidoscope. The sun was growing stronger now, and the pitter-patter roof tiles were becoming silent. Wriggling her toes deeper into the softness of the blanket, Hattie stole the song of the sea from within the fragile shell, and dropped quietly off to sleep. At ten minutes to four, she awoke, having dreamed that someone called her name. The next day was fine, and Hattie drew herself up into the loft filled with anticipation for its warmth. The sun, brandishing light fiercely as a deep golden bar, pillared the south light, pounding its way amongst cracks and shakes in the floorboards. Dust motes flowed its length, swept along in the river of light. Pulling the deck chair into its midst, Hattie allowed the sun to splash around her, reflecting from her skin back up into the dark timbers of the underside of the roof. Closing her eyes, she held the shell to her ear and drifted into sleep. In that sleep, her eyelids became heavy, as if the light against which they were now lifting pressed down upon them with all the weight of the sun. Her lips rhymed with the tart of sharp salts, an air that brushed crisp and lightly across her nose. Slowly, her eyes began to discern the shape of a small figure out across the beach. The figure raised its hand and began to beckon. Above the hush of the waves came the sound of words. Hattie! Hattie! and the striking of the sea far away across the sand. She awoke at ten minutes to four, remembering that someone had called her name. The dreams became a curiosity to Hattie, but no more than that. The real puzzle was why she hadn't dreamed them before, but like the switch in her head, she had welcomed them. 
All she did know was that they drew her into the loft and from there into a deeper, quieter sleep than any within memory. As she slept, her toes buried deep in the pale, sanded wool of the blanket, the sun passed behind a cloud and the heat of the loft began to fade. It fell by degrees until Hattie gave an involuntary shiver in her sleep. She turned in the deck chair to curve herself against the sail of canvas and felt the edge of a travel rug slip against her shoulder. Without thinking, she pulled it up to cover the exposed side of her neck, then stopped. Slowly, her eyes opened and examined the bound edge of the rug. It was soft and deep, with recognised tartan reds and greens. She looked up and out towards the horizon where, in the distance, a small figure waved and shouted. Although the voice was indistinct, she thought it said, Hattie! Oh, Hattie, the shells, Hattie, the shells! Her eye caught a movement that turned her face along the shore. Beside her chair was a man, willowy, tall and slender, skin taut and glowing darkly with sun. He leaned slightly, his back toward her, sheltering her from the breeze while small, unconscious movements rippled the snake of his spine, coiling beneath the warm sand of his skin. His hair, blue night dark, in the wind that sprang suddenly from offshore, bringing with it a scent and the sound of the sea. Drifting far overhead, a white bird clippered the wind. Curiously satisfied, Hattie fell back into the warmth of sleep. At ten minutes to four she awoke, having dreamed of Michael. By early October the sun was ready to leave the loft and Hattie had felt several other but smaller switches turn over in her head until the left side of her body had become little more than a distraction. The late autumn sun burned slow and fat on the horizon and now only poked around in the dust beneath the south light for an hour or two where Hattie waited to feel its warmth. One clear afternoon, while the jet stream shredded the high cirrus into ragged, deepest pink, Hattie made her way into the loft and again set out the seaside things. Under the eaves, the gutters hustled with dried leaves, pattering the tiles like the faint scratch of driven sand on driftwood. She sat with the shells in her lap, turning each one in her hand, and was surprised at the small, gritty graininess of them. Smiling self-consciously, she remembered the places from where they'd been taken and wrapped for the journey home in paper tissue, as if they had been precious stones. In those few sleepy moments, Hattie began to understand just how alone she'd been for the last forty years, and found time to consider that perhaps that's what she deserved. She had insisted on driving home. She sat up abruptly as a final switch was thrown in her head. The thought came that she was dying. She held it for a moment, for the first time ever without fear or pain, 
She sat back into the chair and relaxed her body completely. Without warning, the forbidden memory played in her head like a monochrome film complete with grain and scratch. She watched as a lorry came towards her safely, then suddenly... veer across the road until the world turned black. She reached down into the seaside trunk and took out a shattered wristwatch she'd been unable to let herself see before. The case and strap stained black with blood, the glass badly broken and pushed into the dial, stopping the hands forever at ten minutes to four. She strapped it onto her dead left wrist, and the loft exploded into a scald of boiling water on her skin, an overwhelming stench of steam and petrol and hot oil pouring through where the windshield had been, where a large shard of it was deeply embedded into the left side of her face. With her one good eye, she saw the shape of Michael thrown through the windscreen and draped across the bonnet by the impact, his head at an acute angle, his perfect black hair shredded and tangled, and remembered noticing that his shoes were ready for healing. She looked down to see the metal of the dashboard split and ripped into the large, hard protrusion of her belly, emptying it of its new life blood and water flowing copiously between her legs, mixing with the other broken fluids to connect her indelibly with the machine. Above her head, the shattered battery swung from its connecting wires, raining acid down the side of her face and body. Hattie had insisted on two separate funerals. She calmed her breathing, and the world snapped back to a closer horizon where the sun streamed flat, low and orange through the raised dust of the loft. She again picked up the shells and held them to her ear as they fastened her once more soundly to sleep. After what seemed an age, Hattie awoke to the delicious tang of a clear sea and the gentle wings of a sun-warmed breeze against her cheek. Although her eyes were closed, she was aware of someone standing by the chair. She relaxed the taut muscles of her face and eased her eyes into the brightness of an afternoon sun. The shadows cut long, hard and lean across a beach. Before her was a small boy, he was entirely naked and his hair was tousled, recently wet and now drying, salt licks crystallising slowly amidst a deeper brown. His eyes watched her hands where they rested in her lap amongst moist, fresh shells. Behind him, white birds noisily crowded something pale at the edge of the water. As the boy spoke, there was a hushed urgency in his voice, his eyes now bright with a fresh smile, his gaze lifted somewhere beyond Hattie's head. Dad, she's here! From behind her, Hattie became aware of a soft footfall in the sand. The man came around to face her, and she could see at once that he was the boy, but grown over like the rings of a tree and that the soft wind on the salt air edged at the timbre of his voice. 
Hello, he said. We've been waiting for you. Matty looked up into his eyes. I'm sorry, she said, feeling the loft fade into the sound of her words. Michael smiled down at her. It wasn't your fault. His sun-drenched fingers struck gentle patterns along the salt-bleached frame of her chair. His skin shone dark from every stroke of light. We brought you down by the sea each bright afternoon, he said. Reflected in his eyes, Hattie could see the chapel beyond the estuary dunes and the fingers of its tower clock poised at ten minutes to four. He placed a hand on the shoulder of the boy. His eyes lifted with the colours of the sea and a smile rode the tides of his face. Harry wouldn't give up. He knew that the shells would bring you. Hattie watched the boy who held out his own sand-sifted fingers. Harry? She turned to Michael. This? This is Harry? Yes, he said. And you're tired. But this time the shells will hold you. Just remember the shells. She tried to lift her hands to meet the boys, but they fell away. The shells within her fingers tumbled carelessly in their browns, pinks and tortoise shell, spilling unnoticed across her lap and onto the blanket-covered floor. Her eyes turned up as they lost the sun. And far overhead, a white bird called once. Then was silence. all for this week's show folks i hope you enjoyed your free podcast from urban tiger radio and if you've hit that subscribe button you'll be hearing from us again in a week's time so it's a goodbye from me and a from nelly bye-bye